Well, good morning, Oak Grove. It's an honor and a privilege to get to open the Word of God with you this morning. Let's pause and ask the blessing on this time as we look into the Word for worship. God, I pray that you would open our eyes to your truth. God, I pray that we would be a people who run from temptation, a people who hold fast to your commands. God, I pray that you would show us the beauty of your promise from the very beginning. Lord, if there's someone here that doesn't know you, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. Lord, we ask for your spirit to move on us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So, if you will, please open to Genesis chapter 3. And we're continuing our series, The Gospel of Genesis, following the, the story of the snake crusher. We call it the gospel of Genesis because the gospel is God's good news of salvation. Jesus is the snake crusher, and he is God's plan of how he's going to redeem humanity from their sin. In Genesis 3, we get the first promise of Jesus. God creates Adam and Eve in this perfect garden, he places them in this garden with one commandment. Don't eat this tree. Don't eat from this fruit. Also, we don't know if it was an apple or not, but don't be that guy. If somebody says apple, don't correct them. Nobody likes that guy. But it's a fruit, some, some fruit. We don't know what it is. He tells them not to eat of it. They do, and sin enters into the world. Our passage this morning, we see a need for grace because Adam and Eve did not keep the command. They brought sin in the world, and what they found was a God of justice, but also a God that's full of grace. And you even see that in Genesis 3 in the fall. So before we dive in, I want to give you some, some, some ways, some, some helpful hints in reading the book. Remember last week, the, 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 the hint was um, generations. Every time you see generations show up, you're either walking a character out or you're focusing in on someone. And ultimately, when you start focusing in, it, it, it follows this lineage that builds to, to the lineages of Matthew and Luke, Jesus. And then also this this promise in Genesis 3.15, if we would read with, with that being our lens, with a gospel lens, I think you'll read the book of Genesis in a way that you've never read it before. And you'll see all these, these stories that seem disconnected and di disjointed all of a sudden coming together in a very unified fashion. So what is true? God gives salvation to the sinner by the blood of Jesus. What do we do with that? We believe in Jesus for salvation. It's a simple message this morning. So let's look at Genesis 3, 1 through 7. The fall. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any of the trees in the garden. 
And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the, the, the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall surely not die. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eye and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. Everything so far in the book of Genesis is building to this moment. We're introduced here to a new character, the serpent. The serpent is Satan. We know that from other passages in the Bible, though he's not named specifically here. In this first scene, these two main characters, Eve and Satan, they have this, this conversation, but we also know that Adam is here. The, the serpent speaks, and this is just me thinking about things. If you recorded this story of me with the serpent talking to me, I would have first been freaked out. This is, seems kind of like normal for her. I wonder, this is just wondering if conversation with animals a pre-fall condition Post-fall, that's been corrupted somehow. Because um, we know animals can understand language. You, you have animals, you tell them to do things. Um, Jordan and I, we watched this uh, dog. It's a sheep-a-doodle on um, the internet. What's the dog's name? Bunny. Bunny. Look up Bunny. This is just funzy. The internet is made for animal videos. But they, it's got like this pad, and the lady tells it stuff, and then the, the sheep-a-doodle will come over and say, Bunny hungry, or uh, bunny outside, bunny outside now, play, play. Like it's, it's telling the person what it, wants it to, what, the per, what it wants the person to do. So we know they're capable of language, they're just not capable of our language, right? Um, but we don't know, we'll never know this, but it always strikes me as odd that she's not freaked out that, the, that this animal's speaking to her. But uh, so as soon as uh, the serpent speaks, the first thing out of his mouth is questioning God's word. And Jesus says in John 8, 44, talking about the devil, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar, the father of all lies. And we see here the first lie. And it's interesting because what he does is he twists what, the, what God actually said before he comes out and outright challenges God. The first thing he did was he undermined the commandments of God. Church, this is why I'm so passionate about us making clear statements about the Bible being authoritative and sufficient and inerrant. One of the adversary's favorite tools 
and attacks against the church is to undermine the word of God. Those who present these views in the church of God, I believe that they are unwittingly or knowingly working for the enemy. The undermining of God's word always has catastrophic repercussions. We've seen denominations fall to pieces. We've seen churches fall to pieces. We've seen individuals fall to pieces at the questioning of, is this authoritative? Is this sufficient for all we need? Is this book authoritative on what it speaks to? That's why I've been pushing the church to start prayerfully considering the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Also, I would encourage you to start looking at the Chicago Statement of Inerrancy to bring more clarity as to what we believe. Because think about this, we're, we're growing church, praise the Lord. We got people coming from all over the place and we will need new teachers. Now you don't have to hold to these things to be a member, but to teach, we need to know what they believe. And if someone teaches outside of that, we need something that we can come back to that says, hey, you agreed to this. You're not teaching either recant or remove yourself from this situation. Because it's serious. And it's a poison in the church when someone can't affirm the word of God as authoritative, sufficient, and inerrant. So Satan questions God's command and he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Eve knew the command well. She knew it well enough that she even added on to it to, to, to kind of punctuate how serious the command is. And she says this in verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of any fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the, the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Is that what God said? Genesis 2.16 says this. This is what God actually said. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden... But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat, you shall surely die. He didn't say don't touch it. He, he didn't say touching it will somehow kill you. He said don't eat. Eve, she knew the commandment. She knew it well. She or Adam, out of fear, even added to the command. They put a fence around the law. This is what you see them doing in the New Testament. That, that's what the Talmud, the, the things that these Pharisees are teaching. It's a, a fence around the law so that they would not actually break the law. You know what we call that? That's legalism. God never said they couldn't touch it. Putting up fences around the law to, to keep us from breaking the law, I, the idea is good, but it's not helpful. Legalism is where most church hurt comes from. You've heard me say it before that it's where we get our church PTSD. Everybody's got a little church PTSD, right? Something weird happened. Somebody said something about what they were wearing. Somebody approached their family in a weird way because they weren't 
um, getting in line with the, the culture of the church that's not necessarily biblical. This legalism, you seldomly see the church split over theological issues. Most of it's split over legalistic principles in the church. We get so passionate about things that God never commanded while overlooking the things that he actually does command. One of Jesus' biggest battles on earth were with the religious, the Pharisees, who out of zeal for the word of God, they, they made more laws so that they wouldn't break the laws that were on the books, the laws that God himself made. Well, they also did that so that they could get around the laws and people wouldn't notice it. God does not need our help making his rules. Just work on what he's actually asked you to do. And the only way you can know that is by reading his word. Cleanliness is next to godliness. Is that in the Bible? No. We can play this for hours of things that people say that aren't in the Bible that the culture has picked up as Christian. I think the heart of legalism is to protect, but what it really does is it distracts. Eve's extra rule of not touching didn't even slow her down from breaking God's actual law. Your extra rule won't stand in the way of you breaking God's law. Your extra rule is not going to stand in the way of your kids breaking God's law. Your extra rules, all they're going to do is be cumbersome and confuse. What will help is spending time in the Word of God. What will help is understanding the word of God. What will help is spending long periods of time in the presence of Jesus in prayer. What will actually help is Psalm 119.10, that you would hide the word of God deep in your heart so that you might not sin against him. Concern yourself with the laws of God. Keep them and not with all the noise and all the culturally made-up rules. Here comes from the serpent a half-truth. And a half-truth, church, is a whole lie. A half-truth is a whole lie, and here it comes. He says, you shall not surely die. For God knows when you eat of the tree, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He was right. They did not immediately die. But they would eventually die. He was also right. Their eyes would be open and they would know for the first time shame. Their eyes were open to knowing what it was like to walk in sin. Their eyes were open to this close fellowship with God being broken. That's what their eyes were open to. Do you see the selling point of this temptation? It's not the fruit. There was fruit all over the place. God filled it with fruit. You're missing out on something. 
you would be happier if you'll be like God. God didn't make you as good as he could have made you. Question God's character. The irony is that God made them like him. He made them in his own image. They gave up everything for something that they already possessed. Sin, church, often you're giving up something for the promise of making you happier when you actually already possess that thing in God's good provision. Have you ever seen a cow driving down the road, sticking his head through barbed wire, eating grass, getting all scratched up and cut for the same patch of grass that's under his feet? Three, six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to de desired to make one wise, she took the fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Eve fell to the temptation after the word of God and the character of God were put into question. Satan questioned the goodness of God, his provisions, and he made her feel like she was missing out on something that would make her happy. Temptation tantalizes the senses. She felt that the fruit would fill her. A thing about fasting on Mondays, like food that you don't like, when you're hungry like that, it sounds real good. And then you're like, I didn't know that my, I'm so driven by my body and decision making because I'm so hungry. She looked at it and she felt like it would fill her in a way that would satisfy. I don't know if you've ever broken a fast early because you were just weak. I've done that a lot and it makes you feel real small because you just felt like you needed to be filled. The fruit to her eye looked pleasing. The fruit caused a lust and a desire for something forbidden and she wanted to know what that experience would be like. So she took it and she ate, and her husband who was with her, he ate. Now let's look at Adam real quick. Adam was passive. He was put in the garden to lead, and he didn't. At any time, he could have spoken up and driven that reptile away, couldn't he have? He was so intimate with God that we'll find in our next section that he knew what the steps of God sounded like. He could distinguish God's steps on the ground. He knew the gait of his walk. He knew what his footsteps sounded like. He was close. God was close enough that he could have called out to him. He didn't. Instead, he was silent. Adam's sin is worse than Eve's sin. Adam was not deceived. Adam sinned with understanding. 1 Timothy 2.14 says, 
Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. It took deception to cause the woman to walk into sin. Adam's sin was solely desire. Finally, in verse 7, their eyes were open, and they see themselves in their nakedness. This brings with it in the Jewish mindset, shame. They saw themselves in their shame. I want you to notice how they tried to fix it. They made for themselves loincloths of fig leaves to hide their shame. Like fig leaves, that'll do the trick. God won't notice that we sinned and that we recognize that we're naked and that we recognize that we're walking in sin. He won't notice because we sewed together some fig leaves. It's ignorance. It was ignorance then. And it, they were trying to cover themselves, appease God by the works of their hands. Trying to hide your sin by doing any religious work, any amount of good work, acting religious, uh, trying to take on the culture of the church, trying to do good works, giving any amount of money because you're trying to make yourself somehow right before God. It's just as ignorant as them trying to hide their sin with fig leaves. Those spiritual fig leaves won't cover anything. Only by the blood of Jesus are we righteous. Let's look at verse 8. God comes to us in our sin. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. And because I was naked, I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. God would walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. Remember last week we looked at this, this term, um, Lord God. The first word Lord is translated Yahweh. That's, that's the personal name for God given at the burning bush. And then the next word is uh, God. That's, that's the generic name for, 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 for God. And you see, it's this personal understanding of God. They've got this personal, intimate, deep relationship with God. He walked with them in the cool of the day. He approaches, they hear his footstep, they hide, they're ashamed. They try to hide themselves from the presence of God. Sin causes separation with God. God, he doesn't hide himself from sin. They hid from him. Your sin will tell you lies about God because of your shame. But this is the picture of the gospel. God does this time after time in the Bible. He comes after a humanity who is lost and walking in darkness. Adam and Eve, they sinned, and God chased after them. 
They weren't calling out to his, for his forgiveness. They weren't calling out for his salvation. But still, he came to them in their sin. That's the nature of God. That's the nature of Jesus. Now, sin can't be in his presence. That's why he made a way in the person of Christ. But he's not repulsed by sin like we are. You know, you know when you see someone who's got, uh, like, when one of your kids comes in the room and they got, like, throw up all over them? Or a baby diaper that's a blowout? Yeah. What, what's our natural response? Ooh. That's what we think God does to us in our sin. Ugh. But what did he do? He became a man and dwelt among us. He leaned in. And if you're trying to hide from God in your sin, it's ignorance. And I want you to know that God leans in. God, he asked Adam a question that he already knew the answer to. He calls out to the man and he says, where are you? Adam, I think still hidden, calls back and he says, I heard, you, I heard the sound of you walking in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Then God asked, who told you that you're naked? Did you eat of the tree? Again, God knew, but God desired confession and God desired humility. It's not what God got. What he got instead was blame. The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. Adam takes almost zero responsibility for what's taking place. First, he like low-key blames God. Like, hey, I was doing fine, but this woman who you gave me to be my helpmate, she gave me the fruit and I took an itty-bitty bite. Like he blames God and he blames the woman. He takes very little responsibility. Then God turns his attention to the woman and he addresses Eve and, and the Lord said to her, what have you done? And the woman says, the serpent, it deceived me and I ate. She blamed the serpent. When God comes to you and he brings conviction, don't blame everything else. Don't make an excuse. Own it because you know he knows everything. What he's looking for you is a contrite heart. What he's looking from you is confession and humility and asking for forgiveness. Not all the explanations as to why. He knows. He lived it. Blaming your way into a confession is not repentance. Also, it's no way to, to give an apology to anyone. Maybe this morning you're hiding from God and you're trying to hide your sin, just bring that sin to the light. Confess it. And you're going to find a God who's faithful to forgive. That's what John, 1 John says, right? That sin, it's been paid for by the blood of Christ. So Christian, stop clinging to the sin and cling to your Christ. Cling to the God of your salvation. Let's look at uh, verses 14 through 19. God's curse and God's promise. The Lord said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field and on your belly you shall go and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife, of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and in pain you shall eat of it all, you shall eat of it in all the days of your life and thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field and by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken from dust you are and to dust you shall return God still loves and he cares for them but God being a just God he must punish sin. And I want you to understand, if you're sitting in this room this morning, look at me. All sin will be punished. It's only a question of who's going to take the punishment. Jesus has already paid for it by his blood. You can accept that by faith and be saved, or you can pay for that debt with your soul for all of eternity. All sin will be punished. While we, as Christians, we don't have to make payment for our sins, we won't pay it in full, we still have to live in the consequences of our sins. Also, we have to live in the consequences of other people's sins. Like, hey, you go in and punch your boss tomorrow, probably getting fired, but Jesus will forgive you. But you're going to live in the consequence of that, right? Or, um... You know, let's say a war breaks out in America. Somebody invades us because of something that our government did somewhere else. Did any, were any of us in this room responsible for that? No. But because of the sins and the choices of other people, we have to live in the, in the wake and the consequence of those sins. Because Adam sinned and Eve sinned, we live in the consequence of that sin while we're here on earth. And... Maybe someone has hurt you and you're facing the consequence of their sin. And that brings out this question, why does God allow evil? Well, because of the fall. So why, why doesn't God just remove all the evil from the world? Well, okay, what if God removed all the murderers? We'd be okay with that, right? Um, we'd be okay if God removed all the rapists. Like, God, just zap them all out. What about the thief? Before you shake your head, think about what you've done. What about the liar? Evil's evil. He would have to remove all of us. Every day that he remains and he allows evil in this world is also a grace. Because every day that he tarries in coming back is another opportunity for a lost soul to not face the damnation of hell. I know evil's bad, but God's allowance for it 
even though it hurts, it is a grace. Let's look at the curse. First, he curses the serpent. And um, he's going to have to crawl on his belly all of his life. And the children of Eve, um, they're going to be at odds with him. There will be enmity between them. Then in verse 16, God turns his attention to the woman. And the first part is about childbearing. Sorry, ladies, it's going to hurt. Um, very bad. And then the second is that your desire is going to be contrary to your husband's. And he's going to rule over you. Part of the fall is that within the marriage relationship, there will be conflict. Think about this. The fall brought sin into the world. We're all born into sin. We're all, we're all, we all have a sin nature. And marriage is the collision of two sinners. He's a sinner. She's a sinner. And they come together. There's going to be conflict when two sinners are in a room much less in a, a relationship that you walk together for a lifetime, right? So God then turns his attention to Adam in verse 17. And the first thing that he cursed is work. Work will be hard. At work, there will be injury. There will be thorns. And you're going to work your whole life, and then you're going to die. That's the promise. Uh, that, that's this curse here. So it's crazy that all the things that God gave us in chapter 2 as blessings are now the exact same things that he's cursing. The work was a blessing in chapter 2. And work is still a blessing in chapter 3, but work has now been cursed. It's going to be hard. Marriage was a blessing in chapter 2, but... Now, marriage is going to be hard. It's been cursed. It's still a blessing. These things, family's still a blessing, even though in, in bringing life forward, it's going to hurt. It's going to be hard. And also, God gives a lot, the blessing of life in chapter 2, but in chapter 3, he gives a curse of death. But life is still a blessing. So I, I want you to see the tension here between these things. And all the things that are hard in God's blessings are a result of the fall. Let's look back at verse 15 now. I want you to see the, the blessing in the middle of the curse. I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the serpent. In between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God is promising a male child. He's talking about a child of promise who is going to come and, yes, his heel will be bruised, but he will bruise the head of the serpent. You could also translate that. He will crush the head of the serpent. This is Jesus Christ. Satan struck his heel, but Jesus crushed, will crush his head once and for all. Jesus is bruised for us. Isaiah 53, 5 talks about this suffering servant as this story unfolds of the snake crusher. It says, he will be bruised for our iniquities. He will be bruised for our sins. And it goes on to say in Isaiah 53, 10, and it pleased the Lord that he bruised him. Talking about Jesus. 
Jesus is the suffering servant who died on the cross for us. He was bruised for us, but by his wounds we are healed. His wounds, they were not fatal. Though he died, he rose again on the third day. He defeated death once and for all. And there's a day coming in Revelation um, that he's going to take the, the devil He's going to take the Antichrist. He's going to take the beast. And he's going to cast them once and for all into the lake of fire along with all who reject him. Romans 16, 20 tells us a day when Jesus will bring ultimate uh, peace. And he says he will crush Satan under his feet. His heel was bruised, but Satan will be crushed. This is the first promise of the Messiah in the Bible. That the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And I want you to know, every week, I'm going to ask this, and I want us to say it together. And it's going to, I'm going to say, what is the first promise of Jesus in the Bible? Or what's the promise of Genesis 3.15? And I want us to say together that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Can we try that together? What's, what's the first promise of Jesus in the Bible? that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Let's try it one more time. What's the first promise of Jesus in the Bible? That the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. As we read the Bible through that lens, all these stories of, of people being just good guys, really what you're going to see is God using individuals to bring about the snake crushers where they're, they're going to be images, they're going to be types, but they're all going to be flawed types, all the way until we see this Jesus come in Matthew and Luke. So why is it the promise that it's the seed of the woman, not of Adam? You have to look all the way forward in Romans 5, 12. You'll see it on the screen. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, death through sin. So death spread to all men because all have sinned. Look, or all, all sinned. Here's the deal. Adam, all born of his seed, all born of the lineage of men, they are born into a sinful nature. Verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Jesus had no earthly father. We call Jesus the second Adam. Adam was created divinely. Jesus was brought to earth in a divine fashion through divine intervention. He does not have the inherited sin nature that you and I have because we have a father. He's the second Adam. He was divinely placed in the womb of Mary and his father is God the father and his mother is Mary and Jesus was fully God and fully man and all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And Jesus being the second Adam brought life. Adam brought death by his disobedience. Jesus brought life by his obedience. And all who put their faith and their trust in, in Jesus, they're going to receive 
the righteousness that is Jesus' righteousness. Look, on the day of judgment, when God looks at me, or if you're a believer, he looks at you, he should see a sinner. He should see someone deserving of wrath. He should see someone who has imputed sin nature of Adam. And for that alone, we should be crushed. Not even counting all the sins that I've done. But because of faith, when he sees me, I'm clothed in the actual righteousness of Jesus. Jesus has imputed his righteousness to me. When God sees you on that day of judgment, you don't have to walk around in fear if you're a believer because you're standing there in the actual righteousness, the imputed righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself, something you were not, that you have not earned, but you've just been given. Let's look at our last bit. God brings atonement. The man called his wife, her name Eve, because she was mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and Eve and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. If you're an underliner, that's an underlining passage right there. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and, live, uh, and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man and, and at the east of the garden of Eden. And he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard uh, the way to the tree of life. So, just a, a neat note, every time in the book of Genesis you see people moving east, you always see them, the next story, they're walking into sin. So that's just a, notice that while you're reading. But Adam and Eve, they get kicked out of the garden because of their sin. But verse 21, we find the first death in recorded history. It's the first death. Even in their disobedience, God did not leave Adam and Eve in their shame. He did not leave them in their fig leaves. He did not leave them in their loincloths. The Lord took the life of an animal or animals, and he covered their sins. He covered their shame. He made for them a garment. This is the first picture of atonement in the Bible. Atonement means to cover. Hebrews 4.10 says it's impossible, impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The blood of animals can't bring covering for the sin that we need. God gave them a momentary covering, but they would have to wait for God to, to bring about this child of promise for, uh, from Genesis 3, uh, 15, who would not just cover their shame, but he would do away with their shame and he would do away with their sin by his blood. He would do away with all unrighteousness. He would totally pay for their sin once and for all and present them clothed in his garments of righteousness. God took him out of the garden and he covered them with, their, with his garments. 
what Jesus did. He gave his life to cover us with his garments of righteousness. If you're in Christ, if you've believed, the the Bible talks about us being robed in righteousness. We are clothed with Jesus' actual righteousness. And you you are as righteous now as you will ever be in all of eternity. You know why? Because you possess the righteousness of Jesus. If you're a believer. He's clothed you with his righteousness. So when you sin, confess it. Don't try to hide it. God's God's not running away from you. As a matter of fact, God's coming to you. What's the first picture of sin we see in the Bible? What does God do? He moves to you. The story of Noah. He comes to Noah. The story of Abraham. He goes to Abraham. The story of Moses. He goes to Moses. The story of Jesus. He comes to us. Jesus was not plan B because the garden just didn't work out. Jesus is a lamb slain before the foundations of the world so that he might clothe us in righteousness, Ephesians 1, and present us as holy and blameless to the Father. So when you sin, don't hide. Repent. There is more grace and forgiveness in Jesus than there is sin in you. He presses in. He presses in. Don't don't spend your time clothing yourself with fig leaves of righteousness. Don't spend your time worrying with religiosity, trying to conform to the culture, trying to, to make yourselves right in the eyes of men. You've been made right in the eyes of God and worship the God of your salvation. In the garden, during the curse, and during the judgment for sin, God gives a promise that there would be a child who would one day reverse the curse of sin and take that judgment on himself and bring us to God back in this this garden relationship. And that's what Jesus Christ has done, and that's what he will do, and that's what we see in Revelation 21, the day that we're all hoping for. If you will, bow your heads with me.